This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, starring Ray Fiennes, is now available on demand. The Congress, starring Robin Wright as an actress offered the chance to perform forever as a digital avatar at the expense of her real career, is available now on demand before it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, which is such an important and vivid part of this podcast, it's basically like a third co-host. This is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. This week on the show, love and hilarious cliches about love are both in the air. As we review David Wayne's new romantic comedy satire, They Came Together. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme and inspired by They Came Together. We were going to do just straight romantic comedies, but after They Came Together, we both found it impossible to take any of them seriously anymore to watch them without seeing the cliches. So instead, we're not going to take anything seriously on this podcast, and we are instead going to recommend some other satires and spoofs that are available to rent or stream right now. And along the way, I promise to mangle the Star-Spangled Banner and save the Queen of England from Reggie Jackson. Take that one to the bank. (laughs) But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand this week. Allison, what are our picks? Well, first off is a film that I was a huge fan of, as were many other people, and happy to see it available now on demand. It is Snowpiercer, the ah. English, the first English language film, or mostly English language film, from director Bong Joon-ho, who is uh, a Korean director who's done some great things, including The Host, most famously, which was, I think, the number one film in the Korean box office of all, of all time, and also became kind of a breakout uh, internationally as well. But Snowpiercer is an international production starring Chris Evans, Song Kang-ho, and Tilda Swinton, among others. And it is set on a train in a kind of post-apocalyptic planet where everything has been, like, most life has been extinguished in a new ice age. The only humans who are left are on this train, which is constantly circling the globe. And it has to keep moving in order to keep everyone alive. And on this train, there is a class rebellion and revolution in which Chris Evan leads the people from the back of the train who have been living in terrible conditions and eating protein goo bars and, you know, also look very grimy. 
Uh, that, it looks and, like Soylent Black. Yes. But jello-y. And they live in like like stacked bunk bed things. There's no windows. And they decide to rebel. And they're going to make their way towards the front of the train where all the rich people live. And they're going to take the engine and, you know, make life better for everyone in this tiny, you know, railway arc that is the the last remnants of humanity. That holds the last remnants of humanity. <laughs> Bridge, you filthy ingrates! You people! Who would I know when the benevolent Wilford would have frozen solid 18 years ago today? You people who have suckled the generous titty of Wilford ever since for food and shelter. And now, in front of our hallowed water supply section, no less. You repay his kindness with violent hooliganism. You scum. Precisely 74% of you shall die. From this really crazy premise comes both a really solid action film and the sort of sci-fi film that I think you would put somewhere between Brazil and the matrix. It is the sort of film in which, uh, it becomes, it, it lends itself to some great social commentary about the class system and about capitalism and also some great fight scenes involving axes and, uh, crossing a strategic bridge. It's, it's funny and dramatically, you know, very interesting as well. Uh, some great performances chris evans you know when he's not he plays a very good superhero but he's also very good when he's not particular standout though i would say is tilda swinton who plays basically sci-fi maggie thatcher and she is amazingly repellent and monstrous and wonderful and lovable yes she's she's really terrific um this has been a very good year for tilda swinton and this is uh one of the great one of many great roles she's had so that is Snowpiercer, available now on demand. If you've been reading about it and it wasn't in a theater near you, here's your chance. And it is definitely worth a, worth watching. Yeah, I second that recommendation. Really, really good film. Doesn't really make a ton of sense. Like, right. it, don't don't focus on the details of the train. Right. Like, Be- I don't think it, it, it works better as a big metaphor. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Exactly. That <laughs> it really only works as a metaphor for the 1% and the 99% and all those sorts of things. So... But the reason it's easy to not focus on those metaphors, like, as you said, it's just an awesome action movie. It has all these great set pieces, this weird world. We love exploring exploring the train along with the people coming from the back. And, and it kind of, it gets, it stretches that kind of, the established fictional reality more and more as it goes along anyway. Yeah. Like, it, it, it starts off maybe with a sense of grittiness and then becomes weirder and weirder. More as surreal along. as it goes along. Yeah. And, and really brilliantly cast. You mentioned a couple of actors, but there's even more. There's some surprises that I thought were very effective. So, yeah, definitely one of the best movies of the year so far. So check it out. Yeah. Um, next up are two films I haven't had a chance to see yet, but I'm really looking forward to. And they're both going to be available on demand on August 1st. The first one is The Calling, which is uh, directed by, I think it's, I believe it's Jason Stone's first film. He is a writer producer who, among other things, worked on This is the End. So he is not making a kind of Seth Rogen ish film. Instead, for his first film, he has made a thriller. Uh, this is a description Detective Hazel Mikaleff 
hasn't had much to worry about in the sleepy town of Port Dundas until a string of gruesome murders brings her face to face with a serial killer. Standard uh, sounding stuff, but it stars Susan Sarandon, which is, you know, one, quite an actress to land in your film. And also, I you know, as much as Susan Sarandon's been showing up a lot on screen lately and often in these comedic roles, which has been very fun to see. She hasn't had a lead role in a while, at least not one that I can remember. So, you know, this is her stepping back into the lead and that's something I'm looking forward to. Also stars Topher Grace, hoping as the serial killer, but who knows? You can never (laughs) tell with Topher Grace. So that is The Calling. And also available on August 1st is The One I Love, which is directed by Charlie McDowell. It is about a married couple played by Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss of Mad Men who find their relationship and very existence put to the test in this wickedly inventive romantic comedy per the description per uh, uh, Movies on Demand. I've heard a lot about this one, but have managed to avoid getting spoiled on the premise, which apparently starts off like a seemingly typical relationship drama about a couple who you know are seeing a therapist or trying to figure out if they can save their marriage and then apparently has a sci-fi element which is very interesting and actually makes it very appealing to me because i do love a good sci-fi romantic comedy or sci-fi relationship drama so and you know i certainly like elizabeth moss and mark duplass as well who's usually very willing to take on interesting smaller projects especially ones that he has not written and directed himself he's very game to try out new things so mm-hmm. uh, I, I think the idea that this has a twist is very appealing to me that's the one i love and it is available on demand on august 1st. about spoof films in that the type of spoof film that David Wayne has made, they came together, which we'll talk about later, is, isn't is the type of spoof film that tends to get made most frequently these days. Most frequently these days are ones like Epic Movie or all of those, I can't remember the name of those two directors. Freeberg and Seltzer. There you go. You've, you, it's not that you can't remember. You have worked very hard. <laughs> to forget them and you succeeded until I reminded you and now I'm watching as your mind is it's all flooding back that horrible experience you had watching Meet the Spartans she's bursting into tears before my eyes listeners she's breaking down why did you have to remind me (laughs) she's bursting into tears she's covering her face with her hands I've been so happy having forgotten I know sorry yes Friedberg and Seltzer yes and their style of spoof well i guess you could sum it up in one word as unfunny but the other way to describe it is that they really focus on just topical references 
you know, hey, look, it's it's a uh, three hundred. But there's Michael Jackson right. or, you know, like remember this movie. Remember this one. Right. This one was in theaters a few months ago. Right. <laughs> hey, remember that movie 10,000 B.C.? Well, what if Britney Spears was in it? You know, that kind of stuff. Yes. A lot of that. So, you know, this uh, these movies, which have been very successful for them, I mean, in terms of like how quickly they've been able to turn them around, how relatively cheaply they've been able to make them. Uh, it's unfortunate, though, that that has become what the spoof has come to mean in the like yeah. last decade, let's say. I think, I think what you're trying to say here is that the spoof has fallen on hard times. Yes. And that it is a, if it was ever a reputable genre, which I don't know that it was, it's <laughs> no. now a particularly disreputable one. And that it is considered, I think, by many, the lowest of the low. You know, it was always lowbrow. But I think there was a little a bit of high art in that lowbrow back in the day when it was being performed by the likes of some of the filmmakers we're going to talk about during our picks. But that it's it has generally uh, been it's seen better days, let's say. And I think one of the things that's nice about they came together without spoiling it is that it, it's a it's a good spoof. And it's nice to see those because we really don't get to see them very often. Although I think we've managed to pick with our picks. I was going to say two of, but really it might just be the only two, besides they came <laughs> together, ignoring they came together. The only two spoofs that are worth watching of maybe the last decade, decade I would say. There are one I or mean... two, you know, there's one or two that aren't terrible amongst the group of blank movies, yes. known by Friedberg and Seltzer. Okay. But um, at a certain point, the, 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 the Zuckers, who we're going to talk about a lot, I, I might as well just spoil it right there. Of course, they're one of the names you think of. David Zucker, Jerry Zucker, Jim Abrams. Some of the Zuckers, um, and I'll, I'll look up to see exactly who, but they uh, made or at least produced and I think had a hand in writing superhero movie, which came out huh. probably 2000. Well, I'll look this up um, in a bit, but not bad. Has some funny moments. I saw that in the theater. Don't judge. And it was pretty funny. Um, kind of funny. And then they also worked on, after the first couple of scary movies, which were more Wayans Brothers, right. another name in, in spoofery, they made Don't Be a Menace, and they made I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, which are both funny. Um, they kind of handed the franchise off to the Zuckers, and they made Scary Movie 3 and 4, and I think they might have been mildly involved in 5. 3 and 4 are actually kind of funny. Number wow, f- yeah. I'm amazed that you have seen this Yeah, movie. yeah. I like spoofs. I guess we should get that out there. I mean, I grew up on the classics, you know? Yes. The movies that we all really love that are spoofs. You know, the, the blazing saddles of the world, the airplanes of the world, the naked guns. I mean, the naked gun is really one of my all-time favorite comedies. Blazing Saddles, too. Both of those I would put up there as two of my very, very favorite. Definitely would be in, like, you know, my top five comedies. I love that. And I love this style of, of yeah, lowbrow but high laugh ratio comedy. I love a silly, silly movie. And so I've kind of hung in with the genre as hard as I could, uh, yeah. even amongst the dreck. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed, actually, because there have been some just horrible, mo- like, things that challenge the... The basic definition of a movie, I think. Some <laughs> or a comedy, for yes. that matter. Yeah. No, most of them are pretty terrible, but there have been a couple of, of, of decent ones. But yeah, let me run down very quickly, because we decided, even though we are going to talk about Mel Brooks and the Zuckers, you kind of have to do that, we are going to try to pick some of their less famous titles. So just very quickly, some of the more famous uh, ones that they've made that are on uh, Netflix, Airplane and Naked Gun, both available streaming on Netflix right now. Mel Brooks's Robin Hood Men in Tights, not one of his greatest films, but still funny, is on Netflix. And then some other ones that we're not going to talk about, uh, Not Another Teen Movie is on Netflix. 
I don't know that I would watch it, but it's there <laughs> if you're interested. Casa de Mi Padre, which oh, was yes. the Will Ferrell kind of a spoof of, you know, Spanish language, very over the top melodramas. I didn't love it. Did you did you ever see it? Allison? I never got to see it. No. Yeah. Uh, Josh Larson, co-host of Film Spotting Original Recipe, is a huge fan of yes. Casa de Mi Padre. So it has its partisans. And I love Will Ferrell. That one, I just, I don't know, I just didn't get quite get the joke. I didn't think the joke worked. Yeah, I I feel like those, the people who made that, who also made a IFC miniseries. The Spoils of Babylon. Yes, that their sense of humor verges on, it's between spoof and just that they really want to make a movie that right. does, that just is like actually a pretty accurate right. re- like recreation. And that's the thing, Casa de Padre was so deadpan at times that it, there was almost no jokes. You know, the, the only joke was the fact that it was Will Ferrell starring in a spanish language melodrama that was the entire joke and there weren't a lot of quote-unquote jokes and i like a spoof with a lot of jokes so maybe that just wasn't to my taste however it is available on netflix you might want to check it out scary movies two and three and as i said the three number three is one of the not terrible ones both on netflix uh and then and then the two spy movies that were by uh, Jean Dujardin and Michael Hazanavicious, yes, the OSS artist team, the OSS. Oh, yeah, those are both on streaming on Netflix and I think on Hulu as well. Yeah, certainly uh, Cairo Nest of Spies, which yes. I think is the second one, maybe, uh, or maybe the first one is on Hulu now for free. So you can check that out. I have not seen either, but I, I feel like, you know, obviously that union worked out well for them. Absolutely. So uh, Superhero Movie came out in 2008. So it is within this decade. Craig Mazin was the writer-director. I thought the Zuckers were involved somehow. Um, I'm going to check really quickly here and see if I can find if they were producers. They were producers. Uh, yeah. Uh, David Zucker, at least, was a producer on that one. So, yeah, that one's not bad either. That one's not available for streaming at the moment, but you could probably rent it somewhere. All right. Let's get to our picks. Allison, why don't you go first? Because I've been yakking on here. All right. What's your first pick? My first pick is from one of those people that you have to talk about when you talk about spoofs. Mel Brooks, who really, I think, is, you know... The uh, the genius that uh, in terms of like uh, spoofing genres, he is like the genius who, I I mean I'm not going to talk about one of his like all time classics. Uh, though Blazing Saddles, I would say, is my personal favorite of Me those. Too. Yeah, Me too. but uh, talk about one that is very respected but a little less known, which is High Anxiety, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Um, it's I think the reason that it is not maybe on the level as say a young Frankenstein or, or blazing saddles is in an interesting way. It's almost like too fond and too respectful about, of what it's spoofing, which is Hitchcock thrillers. Mm. Uh, and this is from 1977. Hitchcock was still alive at the time. You know, this is in, in a way that some of those other films weren't very much a contemporary spoof. You know, these are films that came out in the last, like, like a lot of these were in the last decade or two when he was making them. Um, Hitchcock, you know, was at the end of his career. He passed away in 1980. Um, and though he's not credited as a writer on the film, Brooks has said in an interview with NPR that Hitchcock worked with him on the script, that they would do 45 minutes a week on Fridays. Wow. He would come in, they would do 45 minutes, and then they would have lunch. Huh. And apparently the joke in which... Uh, there's a scene that's that's basically the birds in which Mel Brooks' that's one character of the best yes, is sitting and the birds gather and he gets basically well don't spoil it yes. don't spoil it. it he gets attacked in a certain yes, way yes i think that's good um that was hitchcock's idea so <laughs> it just know. makes that it makes it that much funnier <laughs> that that particular joke which is very lowbrow yes and very tasteless was hitchcock's it's yes just, like, that makes it that much better i know and so uh, 
so high anxiety is less say joke dense than something like young frankenstein but it's funny in a really film dork way and that i really enjoy which it has things like dolly shots that close in on outside a room and then break the window uh, you know like that it's, it's zooming in onto people who are sitting behind a window talking and it breaks the window mm -hmm. or something like uh mel brooks's character is in a car and he's set and he's having a conversation and something dramatic happens and the music kicks in the dramatic music kicks in and then the camera turns to outside and there's like a bus passing them in the other lane that's carrying a full orchestra who are playing the dramatic music and there are just jokes like that uh, all the time and actually fairly fairly accurate recreations of of just kind of hitchcock like framing that uh, is really impressive um then you have Madeleine Kahn doing a funny and very unflattering Kim Novak impression and Brooks playing things I, maybe as straight as I've ever seen him uh, as Richard H. Thorndike, a psychiatrist who suffers from high anxiety and who's just taken a new job at an institute for the very, very nervous, which seems to have some nefarious doings. Tell me, Mr. Cartwright, do you know why you're here at the institute? Yes, I was brought in two years ago. I was suffering from nervous exhaustion. I used to get sharp pains in my neck and dreamt about werewolves. 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 And in the two years that you've been here, you feel you've made any progress? Oh, I never get those pains anymore. And it's been six months since I had a dream about a werewolf. Hmm, six months since you had your last dream about a werewolf. Tell me, Mr. Cartwright, frankly, if you were returned to the community today, do you think you could function in a happy, healthy, normal, and productive manner? Oh, I think so. I feel pretty good. Plot, not, not important. Uh, this is one that, if you're a Hitchcock fan, it offers all kinds of great moments and little rewards um, that you'll recognize. And it's Mel Brooks. It's always funny, even when it's not Mel Brooks at his all-time greatest, uh, he's still so good. And, and this one is certainly pretty solid Mel Brooks. So that is High Anxiety, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Yeah, I think one of the things that might hold it back a little bit, and you, I think, alluded to this, is, is that idea that Hitchcock's movies aren't, although I guess some of the things in them have now become cliches, we don't think of them as these cheesy or terrible or cliched movies. They're actually, you know, masterpieces. So his raw materials are a little better, actually, than what, uh, Mel Brooks would usually work with and I think that perhaps that maybe is part of why it's just not quite as great as some of those other ones is because it's hard it, to poke fun of something that's so good right I mean you can make it, it almost at times verges on one of those Friedberg and Seltzer's where you're sort of just making references to like hey look this is psycho hey look this is you know this is the birds and so the the, the cliches aren't as plentiful as they are in something like an, an airplane where you're making fun of disaster movies, right. which are mostly pretty terrible. Yes, agreed. That's a good point. Okay, my first pick. And again, we're going with one of the, the giants, the, uh, the, the Mount Rushmore of spoofdom, I guess. I guess this, the Mount Rushmore might just be Mel Brooks and these three guys, <laughs> maybe, uh, when you come right down to it. David Zucker, Jerry Zucker, and Jim Abrams. And uh, I'm going to go with one of their, again, lesser known but still hilariously funny movies. And that is Top Secret! Exclamation point from 1984, which is streaming now on Netflix. And the Zuckers, most of their movies are spoofs of a specific genre. Airplane is a spoof of disaster movies. The Naked Gun is a spoof of 
cop movies. The interesting thing about Top Secret, but again, what possibly makes it uh, not quite as successful, at least in my eyes. Some people think it's their funniest movie. I happen to I, think... I do really like it. I love it too, but I happen to think... I, I would still put it behind... Airplane, Airplane certainly. and The Naked Gun. Yes. Is the fact that it's actually a spoof of two different genres. They kind of combine them. It's a spoof of spy films, Cold War spy films, and also Elvis Presley movies, which <laughs> Elvis Presley, to my knowledge, never made a spy film. But this is almost an imagination of, like, what would that have looked like if it also had a lot of silly jokes in it? So Val Kilmer, of all people, stars as Nick Rivers, who is the Elvis figure in this film. And he is sent to East Germany. He's going to perform at this, I don't know, it's like a culture festival or something. (laughs) But inevitably, he becomes involved in this, like, underground uh, spy ring and gets dragged into this... French, uh, you know, movement and uh, silliness ensues. I mean, I, the, the plot is is not hugely important, which I suppose is another aspect of spoofs, I guess. This is, the plot is never all that important, although sometimes in the best ones, you at least come to care about the characters. And uh, this one has, a, again, great sequences, great gags. There's an amazing sequence that immediately comes to mind anytime I think of this movie that involves... The entire thing is backwards. They shot it in one direction and then reversed it. So in the film, it's played entirely in reverse. Uh-huh. And it takes a minute to realize because it just seems like what's every, something's off here. <laughs> and then you realize and then they have some fun with it. And it's, it's kind of genius. And there's some great songs because it is a sort of a musical because you have this Elvis Presley figure. The opening theme the opening titles are to a song skeet surfing which is sort of a parody of beach boys songs but also involves shooting you know skeet skeet shooting you see him shooting and surfing How Silly Can You Get is another uh, popular Nick Rivers hit. And that's sort of, I guess I, that maybe that's the Zucker Brothers, that's uh, on the Zucker Brothers family crest, I suppose, that phrase, How Silly Can You Get. And the answer is very, very, very silly. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a great film. Uh, again, I don't think it's one of their very best, but I could watch this movie every day of my life and, and find new things to laugh at. I was watching the beginning of it just uh, before we started and laughing all over again. The The opening scenes involve Omar Sharif uh, as, a, as a spy. And, of course, that's another great Zucker Brothers hallmark is finding serious actors and having them kind of poke fun at themselves. So Omar, Omar Sharif, not known for his funny bone, but doing a very good job in the film. And then right after the scene with him, there's this scene in this giant East German stronghold. Everyone is talking like they're Nazis. It, they almost seems like it seems like the World War Two hasn't hasn't ended in this movie. And uh, someone brings in like a telegram, and it says, you know, British spy escapes uh, is still last seen on the, you know, the British Express or a train or whatever. And the Nazi who the Nazi the East German who reads it looks at it and then takes out his rubber stamp and stamps it rubber stamps it find him and kill him which is like it's <laughs> just great so uh it's top secret it is streaming now on netflix 
It is funny. That is my review in three words. It is funny. All right. Well, my next pick is a more recent film uh, from 2007. So it is one of those two with maybe some other exceptions uh, from the last decade. That is pretty solid. And it is Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, which is available for rent on Google Play, iTunes and YouTube. Uh, This is written and produced by Judd Apatow and Jake Kasdan, who also directed the film and stars John C. Riley as Dewey Cox, who, you know, arises from from poverty and a terrible childhood involving a machete accident and a a father who continually tells him wrong kid died. Wrong kid died. And and goes on to music stardom and multiple rises and falls and two wives, uh, many children, several hits throughout the ages from country to disco uh, and uh, a kind of flirtation in the 60s with psychedelia. And this film is, I mean, it's closest to, and, you know, obviously the title is a reference to Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash Cash biopic that had come out like two years before. And I think one of the things that makes, that attests to the fact that Walk Hard is, is a good spoof beyond that is just that as we get further and further away from Walk the Line, and I barely remember the beats of that, Walk Hard works because it's also about biopics, musical biopics, and how kind of inherently funny it is to just mush someone's story into this arc and to kind of attach, you know, this, like this, this particular, uh, you know, plot line to it and then always find this uplifting ending. You know, it's not spoiler. Like after the movie ends and there's this title card, it's like Dewey Cox died three minutes after this performance, which is like the best, like after he'd figured everything out and that like, like people's lives are ever so convenient. Um, And along with that, it just, it manages to point out ways in which all of these biopics do ridiculous things, including the way that Dewey Cox's life uh, involves intersecting with all of these different celebrities, some of whom play themselves, especially once we get into the 70s and, you know, and 80s, some of whom are played by other people. This is the movie that gave us Justin Long's uncannily good George Harrison impersonation uh, when Dewey Cox goes to India and meets the Beatles. Um, but that it also has, uh, you know, Jenna Fisher is in it and I think is very funny as like the woman who ultimately Dewey Cox falls in love with. But Kristen Wiig is great as the high school girl Dewey Cox marries who like says, you know, I promise you only to unconditionally support you and uh, love you and support your dreams. And then in the next scene is being like, you'll never make it, Dewey. Why can't you just grow up <laughs> and basically spends the rest of the movie playing the like worst version of the scolding harpy wife who is in so many biopics. It is like such a thankless role to yep. end up in, in a biopic, but uh, she, she plays into it really well. It's very funny. And John C. Riley is, is, I mean, he's great when he's doing comedy and great when he's doing drama, but this is uh, particularly good in terms of the ways he's able to, I wouldn't, he's not deadpan. I think like what he's able to do, I think is have this amazing innocence in that there's this, there's this uh, recurring theme in which he keeps running into one of his bandmates who's doing some form of escalating drug. And the bandmate always says, go away, Dewey. You don't want any of this. And then he of course does want some of that. 
And the way in which John C. Riley is like surprised every time, like, what are you doing? And it's marijuana and then it's pills and then it's so on. I, I, I think is, is a test to his particular comedic timing and what makes the, what makes this work so well. Come on, Dewey, join the party. No, Dewey, you don't want this. Get out of here. You know what? I don't want no hangover. I can't get no hangover. It doesn't give you a hangover. Well, I'll get addicted to it or something? It's not habit forming. Oh, okay, well, I don't know. I don't want to overdose on it. You can't OD on it. It's not going to make me want to have sex, is it? It makes sex even better. Sounds kind of expensive. It's the cheapest drug there is. Hmm. You don't want it. I think I kind of want it. Okay, but just this once. Come on in. It's a little over long. I will give you that. I think it's almost two hours long, and there are certainly parts where you feel like it could pick up the pace. But it does also cover, you know, decades of this fictional musician's life. And uh, I, I think the fact that it's so funny still at this point, almost a decade away from Walk the Line, the original thing it was skewering, uh, means that it's working as a spoof. It's very funny. Um, and also, uh, you mentioned a few good songs. This one has a few good songs as well. Yes. Walk, Walk Hard, the song that is, you know, his signature song, but also has a really good one, Let's Duet. Yes, that's the, uh, a great song. The one with Jenna Fisher's character mm-hmm. in which they basically just exchange very innuendos. dirty innuendos yes. and uh, in the form of an innocent country song yes. is, is very good. So that is Walk the Line. It is available for rent on Google Play, iTunes, YouTube, and probably some other places as well. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good one. I'd say that is the best spoof of the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years. I think it's great. I, I think would agree. I think I don't think it's too long. I think it could be <laughs> longer. I would watch a miniseries. I would watch a sequel. I would watch a, a car commercial starring Dewey Cox. And anything John C. Raleigh wants to do as that character, I would be interested in seeing it. I think it's very very funny. And uh, you know, there's a case where we had a genre that was really just begging to be mocked the biopic yes. i mean there are such horrible clichés oh, in yeah. these movies even, the even some of them that are that are not terrible they're just they're just became so quickly it just became such a clichéd thing and such the arc of these movies became so repetitive i know well even that like Dewey cox has got to think about his whole entire life before right. he goes on stage the flashback like that, yeah the flash, like he, he goes to find him and he's standing against the wall like in silhouette and that leads to the flashback right. that is the entire film and the fact that in, in so many of these movies they have the one actor partly to show their range as an actor the one actor plays them from the time they're like Usually it's like from like 21 till yes. they're like 60. But in this movie, he's, he's, 14. he's like 14, <laughs> which is like such a great joke because he is playing it so young. And, yes. and it's just great. John C. Riley is, is my hero. So, yeah, that's a, if you hadn't recommended that one, I definitely would have recommended All that right. one. Well, so I'm glad we got it out there. Yes, I am, too. So <clears throat> my other pick is the other, I think, kind of standout from the the spoofs of uh, recent years. It's not as good as Walk Hard, but it is good. I was just rewatching it again and going, this is this has a not only is it funny, I think it has a certain amount of purity. You know, I think that there's something to a spoof that needs to resemble what it what it is. You know, you you, you want to have a lot of jokes, you want to be silly, you want to be funny. But I ha- I have to say that I think if you squint or maybe you have like five or six beers, <laughs> you have to be able to say this kind of looks like the movie it's making fun of. You know, Walk Hard is definitely silly and it has more full frontal male nudity than a normal yes. biopic, but there are parts where you could almost convince yourself if you were drunk enough, if you were squinting, if you were looking across a room and you couldn't hear it, you could convince yourself 
oh, that's a biopic. What biopic is on that TV? Oh, it's Walk Hard. What's oh, oh Walk Hard. And I think Black Dynamite, which is my pick, passes that test better than almost any spoof in history. I mean, it really looks. I mean, some people might argue to its detriment, like an old school black exploitation movie. I mean, they shot it instead of on you know digital whatever. They shot it on Super sixteen. They shot it sixteen millimeter, and it really has that grungy, you know, exploitation vibe to it that does not look like a, a classy production. It looks like an exploitation picture done very cheaply and and in haste, and it has a lot of uh, sort of spoofing the really low end of black exploitation movies. We're not talking about even like a shaft here. Although, uh, you know, Michael Jai White's character Black Dynamite certainly has some uh, you know, resemblances to a character like Shaft. The movie itself is more like a dolomite. We're talking the the real Z grade black exploitation movies that were done super cheap and have a lot of kind of gaffes and mistakes. There's a scene where Black Dynamite stands up in a hurry from his seat and the camera kind of whoops like kind of pans up and there's a boom mic in the shot which is something that happens in black dynamite there's a couple of lines that are directly kind of ripped off from um i think it's disco godfather which is another really cheesy but wonderful uh rudy ray moore black exploitation film so it it, it's it's definitely going for that style and i think it it does it very effectively and it it's just really funny but it, it has i think it also has that kind of deadpan thing you know michael jai white doesn't tell a lot of jokes here he just kind of has this very intense character who he's doing, who is so serious that it, it sort of becomes a, a goof because it's the, 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 the story around him quickly escalates to this very serious uh, place. Yeah, this yes. enormous conspiracy. <laughs> it begins when his brother is murdered and his brother, he, we eventually learn, is, you know, was like undercover for the CIA and Black Dynamite, who used to be a CIA agent, uh, decides to work with the CIA to figure out his, who killed his brother. But, of course, there is so much more here than meets the eye. And you do have to kind of admire the insanity that, that escalates there and the place that it ultimately ends up with, which it's I have to admit so I did not good. see coming. It's so good. Is is pretty, pretty fabulous. <laughs> and, you know, the other thing that I admired about this movie, looking at it again, and I hadn't seen it since it came out back in 2009, is the fact that it 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 it's it's almost too close. Like there's some, it's not very PC, which a movie of that time would not be, you know. And there's some there are some scenes, some stuff that he says that Black Dynamite says that some other characters say that kind of it makes you laugh, but it has that sort of like ooh, it's a little edgy. And I I think that's that's a good thing, you know, like because again, you're spoofing this 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 form that was edgy, you know, that was exploitation, that wasn't a safe genre. And I think that there is, again, some kind of purity to Black Dynamite that I really admire and like about it. But that might put some people off. So I guess I'm kind of just putting that out there as a caveat, even though I think I think it really works. Black Dynamite! Never in the history of the game has there been such devastation. The CIA needs Black Dynamite now more than ever. We need you, Black Dynamite, now more than ever. I thought I told you, hunkies from the CIA, that Black Dynamite was out of the game. And it's better than Shell Superfly and the Mac put together. But when the mob kills his brother, your death will not go on a band. And put the dope on the street. It's my nephew Bucky. He OD. He's back in the game and he's playing for keeps. So that's Black Dynamite. 
and you can rent it on Amazon and iTunes. Joel Molly, how'd you two meet? Oh boy, well that's a long story. Yeah. Oh, we got time. Waiter, more wine. Well, it's kind of a corny romantic comedy kind of story. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. That is true. Really? How so? Well, Joel's kind of a typical romantic comedy leading man. You know, he's handsome but in a non-threatening way. Yeah, I could see that. Vaguely but not overtly Jewish. You're right. Just Jewish enough. And Molly is the kind of cute, klutzy girl that sometimes will drive you a little bit crazy, but you can't help but fall in love with her. <laughs> okay. 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 So we have our main characters. Not quite. There was another character that was just as important as the two of us. Mm-hmm. New York City. Ah. Mm. So New York City is like another character. Time now for our listener's choice review. On every episode of Film Spotting SBU, we give you three choices to vote on, and whichever film or TV show gets the most votes is the one we talk about on the show. And last time they came together was the clear and decisive winner over From Here to Eternity and Like Father, Like Son. It got 46% of the vote versus 33 and 20% for our From Here to Eternity and Like Father Like Son. So it almost had more votes than the other two options combined. So let's get into it. They came together. It's the latest comedy from David Wayne, who was one of the core members of the MTV sketch comedy troupe The State. And later he made movie comedies like The Ten, Role Models, and The Beloved Wet Hot American Summer. They Came Together is in some ways a spiritual sequel to that last film. It reunites many of its cast members, including Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler, along with state alums like Ken Marino and Michael Ian Black. And it sort of looks at romantic comedies the way Wet Hot American Summer looked at summer camp movies. That is to say, with an eye towards observing and then poking fun at all of their most ridiculous cliches. In the film, Rudd and Polar's characters, Joel and Molly, are out on a double date with another couple, played by Bill Hader and Ellie Kemper. When the conversation turns to the story of how Joel and Molly met, the film flashes back to the origin of their relationship, which will look and sound very familiar to fans of movies like You've Got Mail and Along Came Polly and lots of others, including several classic Woody Allen films. Allison, reviewing comedies can sometimes get a little tricky. A lot of times... It all boils down to the question of, is this funny versus is this not funny? Larger cinematic issues of style and form, technique, theme, they all tend to become secondary, and all that matters and all that anyone talks about are the jokes and the laughs, which, let's be honest, can be very subjective. So, with all of that in mind, my question to you is, is this funny or is it not funny? Oh, I think it's funny. I think it's definitely funny. I don't don't know if... I like it more than Wet Hot American Summer, but I should also say that Wet Hot American Summer is a movie that seems to be more funny to me the more I've watched it. And I do have a feeling, this was the second time I'd, I was I t- took a look at it. I'd already seen it before we got into this. I thought it was more funny as well the second time around. So that maybe just something that David Wayne does well. But I, I think that I actually did an interview with David Wayne uh, for when this movie came out. And something that I thought was particularly telling is that Beyond the fact, he, he said that he loves romantic comedies, which I think you have to to make a movie like this because it knows the plot, like all, all of these little ticks and tropes so well. Is you know He mentioned loving When Harry Met Sally and Woody Allen, but he also said he's a huge fan of, as he put it, like the movies where you don't ever remember the title because it's so generic. And you know it's just like two people on the, on the cover. And he said he's a huge fan of like The Proposal. Um, with a Sandra Bullock movie with oh, Ryan okay. Reynolds. Yeah, I couldn't even remember which one that was. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that, it, that kind of feeds into this. The, the vagueness of a lot of those movies is something that this movie captures so well, 
which is that when you look at a romantic comedy, like just a middle of the line romantic, recent romantic comedy, and look at it just a little sideways, you realize that everyone in it is completely insane, you know? And this, uh, and they came together, captures that so well by just having its characters have so few defining, like, qualities. You know, they're so nice, and they run, they work in businesses, and they have friends who represent different points of view. And, you know, I, I, I think that, that that is something that they capture very well here. But Matt, what do you, like, how do you think this works on, on, on a scale of spoofs? How, do you, how would you say this works? I think it's a good one, and I certainly think it's one of the best we've had recently. But as we said, that's not necessarily the, the highest form of praise you can get. I did think it works. Uh, I, I will say I, I agree with you. Uh, I don't think it's as good as Wet Hot American Summer. But I also will agree with your caveat that Wet Hot American Summer is a movie that it ages like fine wine. The more you watch it, the more you love it. So I hadn't seen this movie before we were getting ready to discuss it. So when I watched it last night, that was for the first time. So I'm only on one viewing and I liked it. Now I could watch it again and, and like it more and like it more and like it more. And it wouldn't surprise me on one viewing. The one thing I would say was that while I think it's a, it knows romantic comedies. And I think there's some really smart humor pointed at demolishing those tropes. I also thought that some of the silliness in it seemed a little out of place, that it didn't really jive with the, the spoofing, the parody part. The parody part, and then the, the part that's not necessarily parodying anything specific, but just sort of silly. There are a few sequences that seem like they're in there just to be funny, and God knows there are worse crimes in this world than being funny in a movie, but I just didn't necessarily feel like they meshed all that well. And the example that immediately comes to mind to me is the one where Christopher Maloney, who I think is brilliant and hilarious, has a, a, a very long sequence where it's at a Halloween party and he soils himself and covers up the crime. And perhaps that is directly from a, 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 set, a, a romantic comedy that I don't know. But to me, it just felt like a sequence that was there for the sake of the laughs, which were there, which was funny, but it didn't really further the sort of making fun of romantic comedies thing you know and i felt like the overall movie could have been a little bit sharper if they it had been just a little bit more focused and a little less scattershot i would agree and i, I that scene is certainly not one of the better ones and yet there are other scenes that have nothing to do with romantic comedies that i think are some of the funniest ones like a a bit in which uh paul rudd's character goes into a bar and has this circular conversation with the bartender that goes that is allowed to like go on yes. for like much longer than you think it would and yes. it's really great it's brilliant it's really fantastic but yes. i would say this yes is that that scene is in almost every romantic comedy where the where one of the characters is sad and gets counsel from the wise bartender so in a sense even though that scene is absurd and it, it, it goes to such an extreme place i feel like it is making fun of something in a romantic comedy i suppose so if it had anything to do with him receiving wisdom i yeah. feel like the fact that it just he goes into the bar, which is agreed, like a very typical romantic comedy scene. And yet what he gets there has nothing to do with what those scenes are like in a romantic fair comedy. Fair enough, fair enough. It is just absurdity and a part that I really like. I, I do think in some ways the like the, the kind of bigger like satirical spoofs, uh, like the, the, the bits about like Amy Poehler's character is like, you know, great in all ways, but klutzy is a little i mean it's absolutely dead on that's a, and mindy kaling has written about this before in a mm -hmm. really funny piece she has in the new yorker which is worth looking up as well but like that is almost less 
funny to me than it's the little bits that I think they call out very well, which is like like bad screenwriting tropes, mm-hmm. which they like clearly Michael Showalter who co-wrote this and David Wayne love things like when Paul Rudd goes in to meet his his best friend, he's like, hey, best friend. Um, and in the same way, um, when he talks to his little brother, his little brother's like, big brother, why do you have to? And he calls him little brother, like right. things that no normal human being right. would ever do. Things that are and bad screenplays are shorthand so that they're trying to muscle in exposition right. and trying to do it subtly. But they, in, you know, they're always doing it clunkily, and here they're making fun of that. And I, that's something I picked up on, too. I think there's one part. It's the scene where they're going to visit her parents, which is another very good scene. And they're like, I'm so glad you're able to come along with me on this trip up to the country to visit my parents. Yes. It's just like, it, I, I, I agree. I, I thought that sort of stuff was great. And that, that's another great scene, too, is the dinner scene, which is very kind of in the mode of like an Annie Hall the dinner scene. And has a great punchline, too, as well. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that in some ways it's like the the more generic things that are or the little the little off off bits that I, I really liked, uh, like Paul Rudd's apartment, which is an yes. amazing bit of set design. Yes. Because it is the most terribly generic like dude apartment you can imagine. This right. Cavernous space. Huge. Because, of course, in any any movie set in New York, it's uh, everyone always has impossible apartments. Right. And it has like pinball machine in the corner yep it has like a, a clocks street, on the walls yeah, three clocks on one wall yeah a stop sign or yeah. something from like a street sign yep. on the other wall like leather couches and just it's and a globe i think <laughs> it's just the, like <laughs> it's like some you know set designer was like this might be what a man would like i've never been to new york or met a man but uh it's 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 pretty great and yeah. and yeah I, I think like those those little bits are ev- are stronger in some ways than when it clearly tries to to pick at something like here is what a romantic comedy lead is like. Right. You know. I agree with you. There are the, the, there are fine touches here that are in some ways more sublime than the big jokes that people are going to quote and remember. I mean, even just in the beginning of the movie, you have to be paying attention, which is one thing I love about spoofs. You can't watch a spoof, a good spoof distracted you can't be on your phone you can't be talking to someone you have to be watching because there'll be jokes in the background there'll be jokes in you know away from the conversations there'll be physical gags and just in the very beginning of the movie the very first scene they're in that restaurant they're talking and right as they cut away from paul rudd after he says something he just he's drinking wine and he puts his mouth he tries to like put the entire wine glass in his mouth (laughs) and it's maybe five frames you have to be watching but it's just Stuff like that, which I just love, too, because it's it's rewarding you for being attentive, which is something that, you know, a lot of these romantic comedies, real romantic comedies, are designed to be watched, like, out of the corner of your eye on an airplane, like, on a date where you're more interested in the date than the screen. You know, like, it, it's just, it. I found that part of it very refreshing as well. And yeah. I think we should also talk a little bit, because we haven't really mentioned them very much at all so far, about... Amy Poehler and Paul Rudd and how great they are in this and how great they are together. And what it was making me think of watching them was how unfunny people in romantic comedies, the actors in romantic comedies are. Romantic comedies are supposed to be funny. They have comedy in them. Right, exactly. And that's what what this movie was really making me think about on like a deeper level was how unfunny romantic comedies are and how unfunny the people in romantic comedies are. They're usually very attractive. They could sometimes be cute. They might have, you know, they but might... they're never given distinguishing characteristics, which is part of how someone becomes funny. Right. right. And even if they tell jokes, 
they're people it's like unfunny people telling jokes you know and here you have two brilliantly funny people and it made me go why can't as much as i enjoyed this i was like why can't we have a regular you know <laughs> non-spoofy romantic comedy starring paul rudd and amy poehler and wouldn't that be an amazing movie and wouldn't that be fun and i i mean hey there's no reason that couldn't happen someday but i that was something that i was really thinking about watching this was i would love to see amy poehler in and paul rudd in a straight romantic comedy yes yeah i they are i mean and certainly paul rudd has made a, a fair amount of indistinguishable romantic comedies not that many i mean some some i mean i think if you went back and looked at his filmography he's made like a handful probably but either way they're not ones that anyone remembers uh, i i i agree i would love to see them together there's another um like i this is barely related to what we're talking about but there the uh, one of the other jokes that i like the most in this is when they're initially bonding and falling in love and uh, they bond over a mutual like of fiction books. Right. Which is as specific as, as anything is willing to get. And I, I think the kind of weird like anti-chemistry, I guess that, that Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler have in this scene in which they're supposed to instantly have this deep rapport right. over after hating each other when they meet. Each other, yes. Over like ordering coffee and, liking fiction books yes uh i think is it does make you kind of wish that they they had like a straightforward film in which they played actual characters right and could fall in love one other thing i wanted to talk about before we wrap it up and this isn't this is a thing that i sort of liked and also kind of i don't want to say dislike but it made me it raised some issues with me and that's this is the is the cast of the film which is stacked it's amazing oh, yeah you know from from up to the top with the big characters are all great comedic actors down to some some roles that have three or four lines you'll go wow this person is in this movie and i don't even want to list them because i kind of don't want to spoil it but you know we mentioned already bill Hader is in there and ellie kemper and jason manzoukas plays uh paul rudd's best friend and he is great melanie linsky is is his is his wife she's funny Ed Helms has a pretty substantial he's, role. Yeah, and he's very funny. Michael Ian Black, I think I mentioned, is in there. And, and, and on and on down the line. And and there are some cameos, which I won't spoil at all, where they people pop up for a scene, a line, no dialogue at all, and those are amazing too. But here was my question. Is, is traditionally in, in the classical spoof, your airplanes, your blazing saddles, that sort of world – you often have comedians in the in the foreground, but you'll often have those those films filled out by kind of people kind of poking fun at themselves, you know, and and that adds something. It's like the incongruity of seeing a Robert Stack telling jokes or or, or being so self serious that it it enhances the comedy in some ways. And this movie doesn't have that. Did that bother you at all? I mean, I, it, it definitely made me aware of how many famous friends David Wayne has. Right. And I think that was the primary thing that came from it, is that there are times when, I don't, I mean, like, I won't mention who it is, but there was a cameo towards the end when there's, like, the big finish in which yes. many different characters come out. There, like, one character who we've never met before comes out, and, or a few of them. But, like, there's one in particular that's, like... He, very funny this guy is like really funny and i'm really happy to have him in the movie but it's very distracting that it's exactly like the character that like it's that person i was right. so aware of who who it was and even like the mechanics of getting him to come and show up and, and i i think like it certainly interferes a little bit mm. um but to me what to me but, but i was 
I was of two minds about this. I, I think I'm, I'm hope I'm I'm conveying this how I was sort of conflicted. It was like on the one hand, I would have loved to have seen a they came together with a couple of the actors that you see in these kind of movies who aren't all that funny. You know, there. I think I, again, I don't want to name any names either, but I feel like we could we could probably name a few who would strike us as the sort of actors or actresses we see in these movies as as some of these types. You know, the stereotypes, and that could have really added a little bit of bite to it. On the other hand. Again, it gets back to the idea that a romantic comedy is supposed to be funny. And isn't it kind of wonderful that here is a romantic comedy that actually is funny and has all these really genuinely funny people in all these roles? I guess, to me, ultimately, that was the side that I came down on, although it was something I thought about a lot. Uh, one more thing before we, we uh, wrap this up. Sure. Which is the thing that they say in the very beginning and repeatedly throughout the film, and it's even in on the poster in tiny little red type at the bottom. Yes. Which is... I referenced it at the top yes, of the podcast yes. as well. New York. It's practically a character. It's practically it's a character. It's like its own character yeah. in the movie. Did you think that the movie's treatment of that uh, kind of, that stereotype, uh, did it work for you? Or do you feel like it was too much of a kind of like New York or New York person joke i feel like sometimes when someone like when paul rudd says for me a vacation is like getting a cheese is getting a cheese danish at zabar's and reading the sunday times or something like that like that was initially funny but uh, i don't know some of the other vagueness of new york jokes kind of felt a little insidey to me uh, it worked for me mostly i thought it was i mean certainly I, I mean it's really making fun of film critics more than anything else because it's critics who are the ones who always write about how New York is almost another character oh, in the yeah. movie. So, and I, you know, I, have I written that? Probably if I do a Google search on my name, I bet I could find a review where I mentioned something like that. And hey, you know, if we're making fun of movie cliches, make fun of the film critic cliches too. It certainly is a cliche. It's certainly worth making fun of. I mean, to me, it looked like they didn't shoot all of it in New York. It seemed like some scenes seemed like they were back lots. And Sometimes there's a deliberate backlot yeah. shot that's really funny involving a trip to another city, which I wouldn't, I won't spoil. Um, but like, for example, the scene, which is a great scene where they're kind of looking out the window of like a coffee shop. Uh, they're clearly not, I mean, the, the New York, the subway stop across the street says like Upper West Side subway stop or something <laughs> like that. And it's clearly not a real New York City street. So I don't know. Was that designed to make fun of the fact that these movies that claim a New Yorkerness, a... a and authenticity about New York often aren't entirely shot in New York. They're shot in Toronto or something, and then they come here for a week and pretend that they're very authentic. Or was that just a matter of expediency and budget? I'm not sure. Uh, you could probably argue both ways. I think, I, I don't know. I think it definitely wants to make fun of, as you said, that the idea of, of these movies often picking up the most vague basic details about a city and using it right for, to, to create like a supposed sense of authenticity right i mean there's not a lot of shots where you can definitively say oh they're really in new york right now i mean the ending is shot right across you know by the brooklyn promenade that's you know that's legit but there's also some stuff that's just kind of like yeah it looks like backlot stuff maybe it would have been funnier this might be more you know Here's here's me telling David Wayne how to be funny. I think I know what I'm doing here. Uh, but I feel like the Zucker Brothers version would have been to have all those New York jokes and then have them be demonstratively have been in Los Angeles or shown the back lot yeah. or shown the t you know like have the Sears Tower in the background or something. Probably would have been the uh, the way to really make it a silly joke. Which is, I mean, this movie is pretty silly though. There are some very silly moments, and I liked it overall. I think it's really funny. And I am looking forward to seeing it again and seeing if, like What Hot American Summer, it becomes one of those movies that, that does enhance on multiple viewings. Yeah, I, you know, for me it is. Um, 
And so that is They Came Together. It is currently available for rent and on demand. All right, let's wrap things up with our Behind the Eight Ball segment. You know how this goes. We give you three new titles, two listener recommendations, and one random film from our My Lists. And uh, each of us goes, give you a little countdown, give you some more movies to watch, and then we we hit the road. Allison, you're going to be going first this week. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, so let's start with three films that are new to streaming. Okay, first up is The Immigrant, which is new to Netflix, the latest film from James Gray, starring a really excellent Marion Cotillard as a Polish woman who arrives in New York a Polish immigrant who arrives in New York only to find her sister quarantined for TB and the uncle who's supposed to collect her is not there and she ends up in the clutches of a shyster played by Joaquin Phoenix who runs a shady theater in the area. And I think what's so great about this film is the way in which uh, Cotillard's character, for all that she is a relative innocent, is more aware of the ways in which she's being victimized than say phoenix's character or that of jeremy renner who plays a magician who turns out to have ties to phoenix's character um the two men both create these kind of more heroic or delusional excuses for which for what is essentially kind of more self-motivated behavior uh it's really a great tragedy and uh and drama and it, it if you didn't get a chance to see in theaters which i don't think most people did it is now available on netflix to check out also new to Netflix, another great Joaquin Phoenix performance in The Master. You know, Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, Inherent Vice, was just announced as the centerpiece of the New York Film Festival. Um, but you can now watch his last one on Netflix. Um, you know, I, I think this is really the role of a lifetime so far for Phoenix and also features uh, as a pretty stunning turn from the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman as the leader of an organization not unlike Scientology. And finally, new to Hulu is Tetsuo the Bullet Man. This is the third film in Shinya Tsukamoto's kind of cyberpunk slash body horror series, which started with cult favorite and the best of a lot, certainly, Tetsuo the Iron Man in 1989 and was followed up with Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer in 1992. 17 years later, in 2009, Tsukamoto returns to his idea of a businessman who begins growing metal things and guns out of his body, um, this time in English and featuring some music by Trent Reznor. I will go ahead and say this is the worst of the three, certainly, but it's still a new Tetsuo film and is interesting to see kind of what time has done or has not done uh, in terms of for Tsukamoto's treatment of the character or the two characters really who always end up dueling in in this series which is never it's not a continuing story it's always just a new variation on the theme okay how about two listener recommendations okay first up we have a rec from Alexis from Medford Oregon who writes, uh, hey, long-time listener, haven't emailed in a while. I don't know if anyone has suggested Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. It is an Australian import streaming on Netflix. Fun hour-long mysteries. She's smart and has heart and is a total flirt. And then we have another recommendation from Graham from Manchester, who actually wrote in earlier. This film wasn't available here yet, but is now available on Netflix. He writes, um, I'd like to recommend Free Fall, a rather excellent German film from 2013. 
Mark seems to have a pretty nice life, moving into a new house with his pregnant girlfriend, a promising career in the police, and all this is thrown into turmoil when he meets Kay at the police academy. Hidden desires stir, and he embarks on a passionate affair with him. Hanno Koffler does well with the thankless, unsympathetic role of Mark. It's a very honest portrayal of turmoil and confusion. Indeed, the two very handsome lead actors have a great chemistry, and a super steamy affair is well played out. So that is Free Fall. It's currently on Netflix. Okay, and one film chosen from your my list. You gave me number 77, which is Twilight, the first film in the series. Not really sure why it's on the list, as I not afraid to say this. I have seen Twilight. I have seen the whole Twilight series. Um, but those are the mysteries of the my list. I think we all know why it's on there, Allison. Let's be honest. Okay, if, if it's on there for repeat reasons, as you're saying, why is it number 77, Matt? Why is it not number one? Well, you have uh, your priorities aren't that out of whack. <laughs> you have other things to watch first, but... Yeah, I'm not convinced by this, by this ex- explanation of the mystery. You literally don't even remember putting it on there? You have no idea how it got on there? I mean, I must have put it on there, but I've certainly... It. Do you do you get like blackout drunk and and watch and Twilight add, sometimes, or just add, add it, Twilight add it films? without not watching it? Uh, that looks good. Yeah, why not? Apparently, all right, Matt. It's sounds your like turn. you. I mean, it sounds like it something sounds, you would yeah, do. Yeah, it does. It sounds doesn't like seem me. out of character. I mean, I'm very consistent in my taste, even apparently while blackout drunk. drunk. All right, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Okay, three new releases. Okay, first up is a crowd pleasing documentary. Uh, that premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival, where it was acquired by Netflix, and it's called The Battered Bastards of Baseball, which I'm realizing, as I'm saying this, that it's going to be an impossible title to say out loud. Uh, It follows an independent minor league baseball team called the Portland Mavericks. They were founded in 1973 by actor Bing Russell, who is the father of Kurt Russell, who actually played a little bit for the Mavs and appears as a talking head in the film. And the Mavericks are basically a grown-up version of the Bad News Bears. There's this shaggy gang of misfits. They've all been discarded or ignored by the major leagues, by the establishment in baseball, but they still became really good together. They had this very gritty style of play, and they quickly became the best team in the Northwest League. They were shattering attendance records in Portland, and then they became the victims of their own success. And that's sort of what the film is about. And... I think the movie could have used a little bit of a little more context. The movie is features some interviews with players from the team and Kurt Russell is in there. Kurt Russell's mother is a, is a subject and some, uh, some, some sports writers from Portland are interviewed as well. But I, I think you could have used a little bit more of just the background about, there's a lot about like the establishment in baseball and the baseball establishment that I think it would have helped maybe a little to know just a little bit about who that was and have someone who represented that worldview maybe appear or at least a historian who could speak to that. Uh, I didn't really feel like I fully understood what that meant, even though I'm a baseball fan and I get the idea. I I just wanted a little bit more of that perspective. That said, I mean, I already mentioned the Bad News Bears. It is kind of like a real world Bad News Bears. It's a it's an underdog sports story. It's a fun documentary. It's a it's a it's a really entertaining and and, uh, well-made film. It's only like 80 minutes. So it's 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 a quick watch. And I recommend it. That's the Battered Bastards of Baseball streaming on Netflix. Uh, also available now on Netflix is one of the sharper no-budget horror movies I've seen in the last few years. It it came and went. I saw it at Fantastic Fest in I think 2012. I'm not really sure why it, it didn't seem to go anywhere because I really like this movie. I'm not sure if you saw it, Allison. It's called The Conspiracy. 
played at Fantastic Fest. It's a found footage thriller about a bunch of guys who are supposedly making a documentary about a conspiracy theorist, and then he disappears, and so they keep investigating these two guys who are supposedly documentarians, and they find his, his you know, his... I know you love this cliche, Allison. The wall, uh-huh. the conspiracy My wall, favorite. the crazy yet it artful. It has some yarn. It has yarn, yes. I believe. Yarn and news clippings. And so they find his wall, his his crazy wall, and they kind of keep investigating the, the, this, this group called the Taurus Club. They're the secret society that supposedly controls the world. And it's a good, I mean, I do like found footage movies. I know some people don't. I think this is a really good one has a really good sharp faux documentary style. The ending, which is mostly done with like hidden cameras in air quotes is really good. And I like the ending of this movie a lot. It's a really nice twist on separating fact and fiction and conspiracy theories. And it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, there's no stars, low budget movie, but really well made. I'm not really sure why it ever, it never went anywhere, but I was glad to see that it popped up on Netflix. That's the conspiracy. And last but not least, one quick update. We've talked before on the podcast about The Act of Killing, the incredible documentary from Joshua Oppenheimer about Indonesian gangsters who participated in this coup decades earlier. They killed thousands of people, but because they and their allies are still in power, they were never brought to justice. justice. And it's an incredible film. And I just thought we should mention that there's a director's cut of the film that's 45 minutes longer than the original version that played in theaters, and that was just added to Netflix. They actually have both versions. They have the original version and now also the director's cut. So if you if you like the film, you're interested in seeing more, you can check out the director's cut. If you've never seen either version, you know, you could start with the theatrical cut, which is stunning, and then move on to the director's cut. But either way, if you haven't seen it, you should absolutely check it out. All right, two listener recommendations. All right, our first one comes from listener, uh, a listener named Beck. Just gave us a whole list of stuff which is available on Netflix. Philadelphia, Crimson Tide, Witness, a lot of 90s, Seems Like Old Times, and also echoing your recommendation, Allison, The Immigrant. That was a whole list of rapid-fire recommendations. And second, we've got a recommendation here from James in Chicago. He recommends... Zodiac, which is streaming now on Netflix, says this is one of my favorite cop films of the last few years with Mark Ruffalo, Jake Gyllenhaal, and especially Robert Downey Jr. all giving great performances, although this movie sort of got overshadowed when it came out uh, by other great films like No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood. This is the movie from 2007 that has stuck with me the most and which I have rewatched the most. I just saw it again and it holds up really well. So that is Zodiac streaming on Netflix. All right, and one from your my list. You gave me number 50, and it is not a film. It is a TV show. It is The X-Files, which I did not watch, uh, even though I had a lot of friends as a nerd growing up in the mid to late 90s that watched that show. I never really got into it, and I added it to Netflix, when uh, my, my list on Netflix, when I saw it was added to Netflix. And actually, I think last year, maybe around this time, one night when I didn't have anything to watch, I started the X-Files. And over the course of the week, I watched like the first three or four episodes and I thought they were good, but it's just the kind of thing where I'm busy. I'm a, <laughs> I'm busy. Well, okay. I'll, I'll be honest. I made you, I wanted you to be honest. I'll be honest. I'm not busy, but I'm watching <laughs> a lot of movies when I'm not busy and I don't have a lot of time to watch TV shows, especially ones that are, you know, over that are not quite as culturally relevant as other things. I feel like there are other things that I should be catching up with. So 
you know, I bet if I watched it, I would really like it. At least I, I've heard that it tails off at the end. But I've heard that, you know, the first couple, three, really four, five good. seasons are really, really good. They're really good. I was a big fan. Yeah. So, well, I, I'll have to try to make some more time for the X-Files. Let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. We've got three, I think, three pretty good ones here. Um, I have seen one of them. You have seen one of them? Yes. But not the same one. No, different ones. Different ones. The first option, though, neither of us has seen. That's correct. And it is an intriguing-looking film named The Congress, which is available for rental on iTunes and also on VOD. It's uh, directed by Ari Fullman, who was the director of the superb animated film Waltz with Bashir. I believe this film has animated and live-action elements. And it's based on a novel by Stanislav Lem, who wrote Solaris, the original yes. novel Solaris. So quite a pedigree here. It's a science fiction film. I'll read you the description here from IMDb. It says, an aging, out-of-work actress, that's Robin Wright, accepts one last job, though the consequences of her decision affect her in ways she didn't consider. And that is Robin Wright, who we love on House of Cards. She's the star here. And, and without giving away too much more, it involves, like, digital avatars i think you mentioned that uh, earlier in the show at the top of the show during opening break it's like um this this job where basically her digital avatar could potentially be used forever in other films like without her so the sort of moral and perhaps artistic implications of that idea yeah and i think certainly timely when we're seeing more and more um, sometimes uh, late actors being resurrected digitally, Absol sometimes the Hawk products. <laughs> Absolutely, yes, to dance with the uh, vacuum cleaners right. or sell. Didn't, wasn't uh, Audrey Hepburn was in Yes, something, something lately. I don't remember she what She might have was. been selling like chocolate or something. Yeah, it's something very, there's something very odd about it. There but. is something very odd about it. And you're right. It makes this idea very timely and very interesting. It's something we're both looking forward to seeing. So that's the Congress. You can rent it online or you can watch it on VOD. All right, next up is a film that uh, I recently saw and enjoyed a lot. And I know, Matt, you've been looking forward to it. It is The Raid 2, which is available for rent and on VOD. The second film from Gareth Evans, who pairs once again with the star of the first The Raid, Iko Uais. Um, it's, it's once again set in Indonesia and picks up like two hours after the first raid starts uh and you know the first no rest for the weary no for absolutely this not the first raid is this very deliberately contained uh but intense action movie all set within at uh, this apartment block that the police are raiding the second film picks up with the eco wise's character as he's basically brought into um brought into this division where he's asked to go undercover and kind of it's suggested that he has no real choice in doing this because the the what happened in the first raid has made his fa family vulnerable and he has to kind of go finish this and it becomes this big sprawling crime epic with a lot of crazy action sequences that evans directs so well and that became a very a signature in the first the raid and made it a kind of breakout so uh i would certainly be happy to watch it again that's the I raid i haven't seen two. it yet yeah. looking forward to it haven't had a chance to so for me it would just be a really good excuse to watch it because that's the thing i haven't i missed the screenings when it came out and and now it's like i don't have a reason to watch it other than i just want to watch eco uis you know kick people in the face so this would be a good excuse to do that yep the Raid so. 2, and it's on iTunes and VOD. Okay, and our last pick is a Netflix option, and it is an older title. 
And as a film I've seen, although only once, maybe twice, not in a long time. Allison's I never have seen, not it. seen it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's Manhunter, written and directed by Michael Mann, based on the novel by Thomas Harris. That novel, of course, is Red Dragon. And much of this material is now the basis for uh, a TV show, a very popular, well, not maybe popular ish TV show, critically acclaimed TV show anyway, uh, Hannibal. That's on right now on, is it NBC? Is that the yes. And I've seen some of that. It's a good show. It's a really good show. It's a really Though beautiful show. It is one of the most disturbing shows in terms yes. of violence. It's some of the most disturbing violence I can think of. Yes. And it's on network television, yeah, which, which is, is really, nuts. really crazy. But it's a good show. And of course, there was a, another movie version based uh, on the novel by Brett Ratner, Red Dragon. It came out later. This is the original one. This is the first Hannibal Lecter movie. It does not have Anthony Hopkins. It has Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter. It also has William Peterson from uh, later from CSI. He plays Will Graham. And uh, actually, Dennis Farina is Jack Crawford. So you have a lot of these characters you recognize yeah. and a lot of actors you recognize. But it's like uh, they've but been remixed. Yeah, remixed. <laughs> exactly. And it's a very good film. It's a, you know one of Michael Mann's great 80s movies. And I think, you know, it'd be interesting to have just kind of a talk, use it as a place to have a talk about the Hannibal Lecter series and yes. these incarnations that it's had. Yeah, we could conceivably just do a show about Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. That would be interesting. I, I mean, I think just the fact that he kind of goes from this disturbing character to kind of an antihero. I, I think there's a lot there to talk about. Absolutely. So that's Manhunter, option three, available on Netflix. So which of these movies should we review in the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com, uh, which is what most people do. <laughs> your vote must be received by Monday, July 28th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account which is at FilmSpottingSVU. And you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, August 5th. FilmSpottingSVU is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The FilmSpottingSVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of his work at VinceVandal.com. We will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. In the meantime, though, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer, and you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. And don't forget to keep sending us. Send, send, send. We want to know what you guys are watching. It's so hard finding recommendations of our own. <laughs> Tell us what you're watching. We are curious. We genuinely want to know. We genuinely want to share it. Email what you've been watching, what you've been streaming, to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. And for Filmspotting SVU, I am Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs>